I just couldn't get off there. I feel the whole, just the weight cuts just took a toll on me. I think um, from the from the minute the back injury to the minute the rescheduled date, um, it was like it was a race against time. You don't have to be a genius to see I was flat from 40 seconds into the fight. You know what I mean? So I just couldn't. I, I just couldn't get going. I feel I feel the weight killed me. The weight from the back the back injury last time to when I got over the back injury, you know, I, I, I cut 42 pounds. Um, I feel it just played such a toll on my body. I think from the rescheduled date, it's always, always going to be pushed. Just listen to him. You're a warrior. You know, he didn't give up. He didn't look for a way out like so many other fighters are doing these days. People are getting hurt. People are getting cut or dropped. And, and, and then they're, they're looking for the towel. The team's looking for the towel. They're looking to just take a knee and listen. I don't want it anymore. It's like a guy could quit tonight. Hey, and welcome back to the number one podcast in the sport where we have our number one star back um, and he's back to winning ways. As much as we may complain and moan about Chris Eubank Jr. when you strip it all down, you take Chris Eubank Jr. away and boxing's a lot less interesting than with him in it. And him winning is exactly what we need as boxing fans. See, now usually I'd sit down and I'd record one of these and I'd have loads and loads of notes about what both sides did well in a fight and why one guy won <laughs> but this was so one-sided wasn't it it was it was it was a beat down and you know credit to liam smith for, for being tough credit to liam smith for a showing his toughness b showing his ring savvy because yes he looked marked up at the end of the fight but if you consider how one-sided it was it could have been really serious in there for someone that's experienced so just massive kudos to him for for toughing it out um you know we saw the clips of his ankles rolling and so forth it kind of been comfortable in there for those 10 rounds so you have to take your hat off to him you also have to take your hat off to um joe McAnally. i think everything he did in the corner was spot on you know sometimes it's just not your day and as a corner man your job is to maintain your high levels and your high standards regardless of what's happening in that ring and i feel everything he said in the corner was exactly what you'd want him to say. And, and the reason I say that is we get very high on trainers very quickly. So, you know, Joe McAnally had a great January and, you know, people asking him to train and Shannon Courtney's moved up to Liverpool to be with him. And I always say don't get too high in these situations when your guy's on top and don't get too low when your guy's not on top. So hopefully the people who are with Joe McAnally are with him because he's a good trainer and they still believe in him. So I just want to make sure that, you know, as part of the trainers union, I've got to show my, my respect and support to what Joe did. I thought it was a good job. I thought you know, the, the small changes that Bomac made to Eubank Jr. I think made a difference. Obviously, it's context dependent, but sometimes the small things you do can have an outsized effect. Sometimes just being in a different environment where more is demanded of you because of who's around you yeah, will trigger your own internal drivers. And sometimes once you've triggered your own internal drivers, you just need that wise old head to steer them towards where they need to go. 
whether that would have been Eubank Sr., Bomac, doesn't matter. As long as there's a voice that Chris Eubank Jr. is willing to listen to and take guidance from, he'll always have a chance as a middleweight or a super middleweight. And so that, for me, that, that's the overview. Now, how do you summarize the fight? Um, nine and a half round beat down. Smith got dropped in the fourth. Some say dropped in the second. But everyone's going to say, what was different about Eubank this time? And so here's where it's all speculation and conjecture because only Chris knows what really goes on in the mind and the spirit of Chris Eubank. And I think it's the same for Liam Smith. In terms of hard tactics, um, compared to the first fight, I just think the real difference was majoring in that uppercut. So Liam Smith holds a really high guard. He seems to have unbelievably long forearms. So his elbows come all the way down to his hips, it would seem. And so, you know, he, he sort of rolls into that kind of crouch with that tortoise shell. And, you know, that's his, that's his defense, really. And then on top of that, he will, he'll sway to the side to give it a bit of lateral movement. But that's Liam Smith 101. You know, he's a guy who's experienced enough that his eyes aren't going to deceive him. So he can read jabs and one-twos, and they're very hard to get through the, through his, through the guard. Kind of like, like an orthodox winky right, just where the arms are just in the way of everything. And so Eubank realized that the way through is the uppercuts. The uppercuts will cause enough defensive havoc that the other shots can come. Because once you throw one uppercut, you don't know what's going to come next. Is he going to go high? Is he going to go low? And like I said, I don't want to overstate it because that, the Liam Smith we saw on Saturday wasn't what you can call within the usual tolerances of a Liam Smith performance. But Chris Eubank Jr. had to do what Chris Eubank Jr. had to do. And so that uppercut became key because it caused enough defensive uncertainty. There was one early in the fight before the knockdown where he seemed to catch um, Smith somewhere between the nose and the bottom of the forehead and just lift him up. And you could see that Liam hadn't seen that because he didn't react to it till it was too late. And so when you do that, you start to doubt whether your defense is quite where it needs to be. And from there, you start to move your hands a little bit and create openings that definitely weren't there in the first fight. And so that became the theme of the fight for the first three rounds, was just Eubank trying to find a home for the uppercut, trying to time that, um, and then trying to bring in that, so go from the right uppercut straight to that left hook to the body. Because as long as Smith's feeling something at all times, you know, he's, he's trying to look everywhere, but his gloves are in the way. So at some point, it's like, does he, does he start to drop his hands so he can have a better look? Or does he just trust in his preparation? Then he got dropped in round four where he, he dropped into a Eubank uppercut. Now, people say it was perfectly timed. Eubank was just throwing so many of them. You know, it's a whole broken clock thing. One of them was bound to land in that position. And he caught Liam at the right time. Liam takes the knee, goes down, kind of grins to himself, but does what a veteran does, just shoots out the gum shield to go, look, just in case I need an extra 30 seconds, just shoot out that gum shield. And hardcore's go, ah, that's cheating. Coaches will go, nah, he's smart. There's still a long way to go in the fight. So by that point, if Smith hasn't got it in him to come out swinging, it's not going to happen. And so once Eubank realized there was nothing coming back, teed off on him early in the fifth round trying to get him out of there. It didn't quite work. And then Eubank kind of said, huh. I'm going to win this anyway. Let me not take any risks. And what kept the fight compelling was, as a fan, you felt Liam was going to come strong in the second half of the fight. You felt he was holding back. He was trying to get Eubank to punch himself out. You got to round seven, round eight, and you're like, nah, I think, he, I think he's done here. 
Round nine, you're like, Joe might need to grab the towel, mate. And then the referee did the right thing in the 10th round. Um, it's as routine a uh, pay-per-view fight as you're going to see. You almost wonder, should it have been pay-per-view? But you can understand why it was. You know, I don't want to be revisionist and say, well, having seen it now, it was a disappointment. But you almost want to sort of play fantasy matchmaker and go, if you took Saturday's Eubank and January Smith, what fight would we have had? My instinct site would have been pretty similar to this one, but maybe with a little more drama. Why don't you a fair bit more drama? Because I think that Liam Smith was in better shape. But sometimes you've got to talk about the, the story around the story to really understand what this fight meant to both men. So I think I said this after their fight in January. I said Chris had been through a lot. He lost his brother Seb. Um, his dad was struggling with the loss of his son. His dad was struggling with his relationship with Chris Jr. So there's a lot happening in Chris's life. Um, he's intuitively, just from little bits of it, he, he felt he should be with Roy, but didn't understand what Roy wanted him to do. And there were all of these elements, the whole Conor Ben thing that had happened as well. And then that had fallen through. He had been to hell and back. Like, remember, he dragged his body to hell to make weight for that fight. And I wish after the fight had been cancelled, he'd just let his body rebound instead of trying to cut weight to prove he could make it. I think that had a knock-on effect all the way into January. So if you imagine, um, what was it, October time, he makes a savage weight cut. Then in January, he makes a pretty savage weight cut on top of that. And then all the other stuff that goes on in your life as an adult, as you get into your 30s, these things just mount up. The, the stresses and the pressures just load up. And so you can understand why maybe he was a bit flat in that first fight. You can understand that maybe his emotions got the better of him. Maybe if he'd had a clearer head, maybe if he had had the focus he had this time, would that first fight have been different? But did he have the people around him who could have done that? Or were the people in his life at that point more the cause than the solution? And so you've got to throw someone like, like, like that rope ladder to pull themselves up and go, well, maybe it was bad. But that performance was so bad, you wondered, did he want to box anymore? I remember feeling that. Does this guy want to box? He's got a nice house. He's living okay. He's, a, he's like a hybrid celebrity. He's a sports star, but he's crossed over into that cultural consciousness. Um, probably one of the more enigmatic athletes on social media, all that sort of stuff that Junior's been fantastic at. And he could have flipped that into God knows what. You know, he's got a, a strong enough name that brands would associate themselves with him. And instead, what does he do? He rips up, he rips up everything he had done before. Goes to Vegas. I think that's where he went. That's where his dad sent him when he was young. And that's how he knows Floyd Sr. and a lot of those other guys from Vegas. So he goes back to Vegas and sets his camp up there. Um, recruits Bomac, who's just off helping Terence Crawford. Um, and you know, most boxing fans will assume that ah, he's got him to, to box more like Crawford. And I don't necessarily think it's that. It's in Bomac, you have someone who's been there and done it. That's how I'd put it. You've been there and you've done it. You know how to get an elite athlete prepared to do things that are so fundamentally sound. That's really, if you look at Bomac, you don't think of flashy stuff. You think of someone who creates fighters that seem to be fundamentally sound. And that doesn't always work, by the way. It didn't work with Amir Khan. But different stages and careers and 
different appetites to listen. So Eubank does all of this stuff. And we're hoping that it helps turn the corner. But in your head, you're like, rematches normally go the same way as first fights. Froch grows was proof of that. But then Joshua Ruiz is a counter to that. Uh, so where do you sit on this? And before, I, I just didn't think Eubank would win. I wanted him to win. I think boxing is better with him in it. But I just couldn't see it. Now, I couldn't see what adjustments you would make. And it was more like, would Liam come in overconfident? Um, and if the fight happened on the original date, would Eubank have been this version? I think the time from January to now has helped Eubank recover physically and emotionally from everything that happened up until January this year. I think post-January, it seems everything that could, that could go wrong for Smith probably did go wrong for Smith. So now it's time to be honest and talk, as I say, up North's brass tacks about Liam Smith. Liam Smith is what you call a trade fighter. Yes, he's won a world championship. Yes, he's part of a boxing family. And yes, Sky tried to promote him. But if you really think about the Smith family, is Paul Smith Jr. and is uh, Callum Smith, really, in boxing fans' consciousness. Then you get to Liam, then you get to Stephen. So this time last year, Liam Smith didn't have a single win that the average boxing fan cared about. Yes, he'd been in with Canelo. He had two fights with Liam Williams. One was controversial, one wasn't. But it's just Liam Smith. He's there to fill undercards. N not, not to be disrespectful. So Liam Smith beats Chris Eubank Jr. Knocks him out. First guy to drop him, first guy to stop him like that. Did that go to his head? Because yes, he tried to do the thing of playing football on a Sunday to show that it wasn't a big deal. And that's all cool, but you're walking around a city that loves your family. You're now the guy in that family. You're the main guy in that family. Like, you've been in the shadows of everyone else up until this point. Now you're that main guy, and you're going out, and people are willing to do stuff for you. Not saying that they weren't before, but that just goes up a notch or two. Maybe they were buying him pints. Maybe he was eating in restaurants for free. I don't know what, what happens, but you know Liverpool take care of their own. Maybe he fell in love with that. That was a nice feeling. I'm finally validated in my city. I'm the main guy. And so that can happen to you. And you can fall in love with that lifestyle. Then the rematch gets activated and you're like, I've got to lock in again. And you're not worried about Yuban because you stopped him so decisively before. You're like, mm, okay, we can go again. But it's a different lifestyle now. You're loved in your city. You're having a great time. You're a family man. Everything's good. Are you training as hard? Or are you like, I've got this guy's number. The fear's gone. There may have been the fear before, but now that fear's gone because you stopped him. And yes, back injuries can happen. But if Liam Smith is prepared to go in on a press conference and say he had to cut 42 pounds for this fight, what the hell was he doing? That would have meant he was walking around at 202 pounds. Or was he just was he just chilling with, with Anthony Fowler, just eating um, just eating uh, what do you call him CBD gummies, getting the munchies and whatever the hell else happens seemingly in Liverpool now? I have no idea. But how do you get to two hundred and four pounds? And more importantly, 
Not one person at that press conference said, how the hell did you balloon up 42 pounds? So let's just drill down into that. Liam Smith has enough money about him that he can have a nutritionist. Even if he has to share them with someone else, doesn't matter. He can have a nutritionist. Someone will be happy to do that just to get his name on, this, on their website, the CV, whatever. When he gets told that the fight's been postponed, potentially September 2nd, did no one in his team say, mate, just stay around 170, 172 pounds. Yeah. Just so we're sure. You know, while you're recovering, just keep that weight under control. Yeah. That should have been the first thing that someone said. And, and, and I've seen this happen before because, remember, Hey Bellew was meant to happen and then it got postponed due to injury. And those guys didn't let their weight balloon. They kept it, I mean, within the tram line so, they could, so you didn't have to burn up weeks in camp cutting down again. So someone has to ask Liam, how did you get so heavy? Your career like middle. Like, how are you struggling to make 160? That's the definition of unprofessional. Like, I've said this on numerous episodes. For me, the only job a professional boxer has is to make weight. The bonus of making weight is you get to fight. Because you can't guarantee you're going to win. But you can guarantee you're going to make weight. That's the only variable you control in a fight. Whether you make weight or not. That's your responsibility. Yes, people will help you, but that's on you. So at what point was Liam Smith weighing himself going, fuck, I'm 180 pounds. And then a few weeks later, I'm 202 pounds. At what point do you take personal accountability and go, there's a problem here? And so I'm not saying this to, to kick a man when he's done. I'm saying this because there has to be another story. Either it wasn't 42 pounds or something happened to Liam in the preparation for this fight that threw him off. And the only reason he saw it through was to get that money, like George Groves against Callum Smith. Funny how these stories seem to intertwine, right? Callum Smith was the recipient of George still being injured when he fought him. And maybe Eubank Jr. was the recipient of Liam not being quite right. Maybe in the fullness of time, Joe McAnally had come out and say, and then maybe Eubank will say what was wrong in January, and we'll get to the bottom of these things. I've, while they're active fighters, I don't think we'll ever get to that. But maybe in retirement we will. And so the sum total of it is, Liam didn't look right on the scales. And he should have been coming in 159.5, something comfortable because you're a light middle moving up. Yes, you're 35, but come on, really? And Eubank just seemed confident that Liam had struggled with the weight. And you're almost like, from where? But, you know, sparring partners talk, people in the gyms talk, because everyone knows everyone in boxing. Like, it's, a, it's an environment that's impossible to keep a secret in. It just is. Trust me on that. Like, things leak out. Sometimes things are made up. But mostly the stuff comes out that needs to come out. And Eubank would have found out. And so, yeah, we can say Eubank was incredible. We've got to discount Liam's performance because it was poor. It wasn't um, reflective of someone with this level of ability and experience at all. And he's dismissed the fact that his ankles were a problem. Fair enough. He hasn't said his knee was a problem. He's just said he felt flat. So we've got to take him at his word, right? So we then, 
we're going to come to the question, what is feeling flat? Um, that's, and, and it's a way of trying to explain to, to people listening who, who haven't had that feeling of what feeling flat is. And it's different things in different contexts. So bodybuilding, feeling flat is when your muscles look hard but not full. So you don't look like, um, like a cartoon character, right? You're just not rounded out. Yes, it's, it looks solid and hard, but it looks quite two-dimensional and not three-dimensional. And for two names as reference, you, if you ever compare pictures of Branch Warren and Phil Heath, you'll see the difference between the two. Now, in boxing, it's completely different just because they're different sports, different demands on different energy systems. Feeling flat in boxing is knowing what you should do and your body not responding or your body responding too late for it to be effective. That sometimes happens with age, Sugar Ray Leonard versus Terrible Terry Norris. But it happens in boxing a lot because on fight night, no fighters ever 100%. That body will either peak before fight night, it may be the day before, maybe the week before, or it will peak after fight night. It may even be the Sunday afternoon, maybe the Monday. Because preparation is such an imprecise art that you can't get it right. And I know what people ask at this point. So why is it that, you know, the better guy wins more often than not? And that's actually just down to years of work. If you look at the people who generally win fights and you go, how many rounds have they done? How many sessions have they done? How many hard sessions have they done? The winner normally has done more. Uh, Craig Richards versus Jake Ball is an example. I just genuinely believe Craig Richards has done more training sessions than Jake Ball. Uh, I mean, just with, as professionals by far. Same with Craig and Andre Sterling, and I love Andre, but I know Craig was doing more training sessions than Andre. Andre got to a higher level as an amateur, but Craig closed that gap by being consistent. So that's normally why the favorite wins, because of those inputs over days, weeks, months, and years. But feeling flat for me, and this is just my theory on it, when you're cutting weight, you're not trying to draw up an inventory of what you're taking out of your body. Right, You're just trying to lose pounds, kilos. You're trying to reduce a number on a scale. If it's water, it's water. If it's fat, it's fat. In some cases, if it's muscle, it's muscle. As long as you get down to that number, we'll solve the problems afterwards. So what often happens, depending on how you make weight, different things may come out of you. You may lose more sodium than you wanted. You may lose more magnesium. You may lose or deplete supplies of things like um, acetylcholine and the, and the factors that go into actually creating acetylcholine in the system, which is a neurotransmitter chemical. So if your neurotransmitter chemicals are low, it's just taking your body longer to recycle, right? So now you're just automatically slower. Yeah, so that, that ability to recycle things like acetylcholine are performance advantages. Some people are born with a faster ability to do it than others, and they tend to make better athletes. Um, you may deplete your supplies of things like ATP, for example. You may deplete your supply of things like creatine. There are all these things that you don't know are coming out of you because you're sweating them, you're pissing them, you're, you're pooing them. It's all coming out of you. 
and if the wrong things come out and they don't get replenished post weighing, you feel flat because now I can't react to things. I don't have the acetylcholine to go from thought to action as quickly as possible. I've, I also don't have that same snap. I'm not explosive for the same reasons. None of this stuff is in me anymore. That's what feeling flat is. It's an accumulation of all these things that should be in you, not being in you. It can also be a lack of sleep. Maybe you're not sleeping or haven't slept right in a while. Your body may be stressed because you're not used to that bed. There are all these little things that add up. So fight night, no one is ever really 100%. And so to, to bring it down to sort of everyday thinking, most people who go to the gym, I, I'm confident, if you track what time you do your heaviest lifts, and I mean like when you break records, so if you go from 160 kilo to 180 kilo deadlift, the day and time you do that, and then go to when you go from a 160 squat to 180 squat, the day and time you do that, you'll find that it's generally around the same time. Not the same day, just around about the same time. Because if you've been training long enough, your body knows what the ideal window is, and you sort of gravitate towards that training time. So I know between the hours of 2 and 4, if I've got time to train, I'll do something pretty good. Not to say I'll be bad on all the other days, but those times my body's just primed. It's, it's the right levels of everything. And this is the holy grail in boxing. Can I get the right levels of everything before I walk in on fight night? That's why I'm, I'm a big fan of being able to have drips of stuff that you would naturally produce. You know, like carnitine and stuff like that. You should be allowed to do that without you know, UCAD getting upset. It's a health thing, it's a safety thing. But it's also just, that's how you take the stress away from your body. And that's how you guarantee performances on fight night. And I wouldn't be surprised if that flatness Liam felt was an accumulation of a crash in weight and being indiscriminate about what you're losing. You know, were you replacing your sodium? Were you, we don't know what the, the post-fight protocol was. And all pros should have a post-fight protocol. Because you want to, I think, every fight you want to cut weight the same way. Start the same time, get to the same point. So you want to walk into camp roughly the same sort of weight. As you get older, you want to bring that number down a bit because it's going to be harder to shift those last few pounds. But you want the same process because then you can factor in and go, actually, this isn't working anymore. Tweak that variable there. Okay, that's worked. Keep that in the notebook. And then you also know exactly how to replenish because you know how you've done the weight. All these things are really, really important. And they contribute to feeling flat and unable to, to let the shots go that you want. Because your brain's still active, but your body's just letting you know, we're not going to do it today. So that's kind of where you end up. And you saw both men in the press conference. Um, Eubank just looked relieved. Didn't even look happy. He looked relieved. You know, the, the show's back on. And he, he, was, he was. He was looking at potential oblivion. The public going, ah, never be as good as his dad. All this sort of stuff. But now he's kind of having his moments where of all the kind of next gen sort of names, he's now building his own legacy. All that's missing now is a world championship and a few defenses. And then he steps out the shadow of his dad. But he looked relieved. He looked like he said, okay, I'm a proper boxer again. Perfect. I'm not just Chris Senior's son. I'm not this novelty act. I'm not this bridge between the YouTubers and the pros. I am a legitimate pro in my own right. 
and that was good to see. Liam looked dejected and heartbroken. He looked like genuinely like, I can't believe I've lost. And that will take a while to, to get over because he said a lot of things. And so he must have said those because he felt that. Like Eubank could never lace his gloves. And you, Eubank did. Then you saw Team Smith kicking off in the press conference. No idea why. But the biggest shock was, why were there so many people at that press conference? Like, who the hell are all those people? You know, everyone's just there with their phones and their cameras just trying to get content, man. Got to get content. Got to get them likes and views. Just a quick, quick trivia stat. You know, after the Yusuf Dubois fight, I had to get my grift on. And I posted up a video on Instagram. It got a million views. And it led to, I think, seven extra followers. And it just made me realize these views don't mean anything. Uh, unless you can really monetize your views, they don't mean anything. So all of those guys up there burning up money, going to Manchester, staying in hotels, just clout chasing. And, you know, catching little clips of, I think it was Paul Smith Sr. kicking off and making a whole load of noise. But it's like, your, your son lost, man. Go home. I mean, just go home and you know, stop, trying to, stop trying to salvage the remnants of dignity you have because I mean, after Baturbiev's done with Callum, I think that's the end of that family. You know, a family that was pretty much only popular in Liverpool. And I'm not saying that to take shots. It's, they became a very hard family to like and I can never put my finger on why. You know, I don't even say it's not that they felt entitled, but it almost is like they felt that they were boxing, which is kind of hard to argue, but it just never sat right with a lot of boxing fans. So post that press conference, you got guys like Ben Shalom going, yeah, we knew it wasn't going right. We knew that there were problems. Mate, you put it on pay-per-view. There shouldn't be any problems on a pay-per-view. You know? If you knew Liam was in a bad way, you should have given him an alternative date. I have no idea why you press-ganged him into that date if you knew that things weren't going right. If you'd seen him and you're like, I can't believe how big he is, why wouldn't you just move the date out? It's a pay-per-view. Man. Like, it's not dependent on a TV slot. But we live and we learn, and now these two men face vastly different short-term futures. Um, Junior has the pick could fight Kel Brook. I think that's a, that's a good fight if you want to fill out an arena. You can fight Conor Ben, but I just don't see um, Kala trying to burn bridges with, with Sky and doing that, unless Sky get cut in on that. So I don't know how that's going to work. There are all of these sort of variables you look at and you go, what do you want? Like, I still don't believe there's been enough contrition around the Conor Ben situation where people are like, yep, yeah, I want to see Eubank versus Ben. It's like, well, a year ago you wanted Ben kicked out the sport. Make your damn mind up. You know, we're... I don't know. Um, and then Eubank called out Triple G. If that fight needs to happen, it needs to happen. I'd like to see Eubank Jr. versus Charlo at 160. Um, yeah, Jamal Charlo at 160. Or 168. Chris can make both. Or maybe they just do it somewhere in the middle. I don't know. But those sorts of fights, man, it's time for those to happen because he's not getting any younger. As for Liam Smith, um, fight whoever Eubank doesn't. So why doesn't he fight Conor Ben? Whatever we want to say, before Conor fights Chris Eubank Jr., he needs an interim fight. He needs a fight that's going to get him back. And we have no idea when he's going to be back. No word on the appeal. No word if he gets his license back. So we don't know when he's going to be back. 
but that's where it is. You know, these British 160 guys are just going to be middling around, just trying to get paydays because they're not trying to fight anyone with any note. Like, none of them are going to fight Denzel. And, you know, I know people want to be catty in the comments and go, ah, you're just bigging up your mate. No. Denzel Bentley's a com is been comfortable as British champion. You know, if, if you can't fight these sorts of fights now, when is he supposed to fight them? When is Denzel supposed to fight Kell Brook? When is he supposed to fight Liam Smith? When is he supposed to fight Eubank Jr.? It's now. He's hitting his peak years. Denzel should be fighting these guys now and they should be noise. Where were Dev's tweets? They're the only tweets I want to see from Dev now. One of those Sky Boxer 160 guys jump in with Denzel. Kell Brook, jump in with Denzel. You know? But it won't happen because people know, you know, once you get past a certain age, punches from guys like Denzel hurt a lot. And you will feel every one of them and you'll wonder, why am I still in the sport? So I get it. Um, let's just talk about the rest of the card now because I'm trying to keep this one short because I think that's what you guys respond to a lot more. Uh, Adam Azim. I'm on the fence on this one. Not on him as a talent, but on this performance. People are saying, ah, it's a good performance, it's a learning fight. And I've learned not to, to buy into that sort of nonsense. It's a learning fight when we see you making adjustments. So, had I seen Adam Azim throwing combinations? Had I seen Adam Azim going to the body? Had I seen him setting up opportunities? I would have 100% believed that's a learning fight. What I saw was a guy who has just taken what he did at Pinewood Star and carried that on. And that's okay at the level he's at now because he's, he's talented and he's got athleticism and reflexes and all those sorts of things that are advantageous. But what's going to happen is there are going to be guys that have that too. Dalton Smith and so on and so forth. And they're not going to let him have the same openings he's seeing now. Then what? He really has to learn to start breaking people down. This is the time you prepare to be a world champion. This is... This is the time you're putting those pieces of the jigsaw together so that when you do fight for a world title, everything's battle-tested. You don't want to be going into a camp then trying to learn stuff. You want to be learning that stuff now and refining it over time. And I need to see that in Adam Zimba. I think he's talented but because he's still fighting guys that you wouldn't have put him in with at the stage. As simple as that. Um... That kid he fought, the, um, the Ukrainian kid, or the Armenian, I can't remember. That's probably better than anyone that Dalton Smith's fought. But did he use the opportunity the way that he should have done? Um, I thought he relied too much on his athleticism when he probably should have focused more on breaking down his opponent. Because there are a lot of guys who are going to see him and park the bus and go, man, <laughs> you break me down. And so he's going to have to learn that. And I think he can. And I have faith in him. But it's got to start happening soon. Or he's going to be that guy. Because I'll say this now. At 140 pounds, whatever age Amir Khan would have been, Amir Khan would have taken that guy out. We don't respect Amir Khan enough. But Amir Khan would have taken that guy out. Comfortably. I, I don't question that for a second. I don't know if Ricky Burns would have. But Amir Khan definitely would have done. Maybe, maybe they just need to let Adam Azim have some of those learning fights against someone who's not going to fall over. Maybe he has to give away a few kilos to make it competitive and interesting. I don't know. But I wouldn't be disappointed if he, if he dropped down a level and just focused on building his base of skills for when he does become a world champion.
You know, I'm sure what I'm saying is probably what Shane's thinking as well. You know, because I know how Shane thinks to an extent, and that's that's kind of what it is. Um, Fraser Clark versus Dave Allen. Dave hasn't had a serious fight since Nick Webb. Um, that's over five years ago, is it? Oh my God, it is. Oh my God, he hasn't had a serious fight since then. Um, he's kind of he's been a trainer. He's been this. He's been that. And, you know, Fraser Clark, not long ago, won the Olympic bronze medal. Fraser Clark, generally, if he's not injured, stays in the gym. Comes back to this point. Those guys aren't that far apart in age. If I remember correctly, Fraser Clark is the older of the two. But they've been around the amateur scene at the same time. These guys are all contemporaries of guys like Kesh Ashfak, uh, Mitchell Smith, um, do you remember the kid that fought Jermaine Brown? Um, Jamal Ledoux would be in that mix as well. The, so, I mean, that's they're, they're in the same ballpark as each other. But I am 100% confident Fraser Clark has at least five times the number of training sessions Dave does in the last decade. And probably against higher quality people. Those guys have probably done rounds together because remember, Dave was meant to be part of the GB setup until they were like, I don't know if this guy's hungry for this. Because I guarantee this, Dave Allen's boxing IQ is far higher than Fraser Clark's boxing IQ. By far. But Dave's not consistent. And consistency is your best friend in boxing. And that's how Fraser was able to break him down, beat him down, because Dave came for the money. He didn't really come for the opportunity. And when you get to 31, 32, you can't keep just rolling out when you feel like it. Your body's just not going to thank you for it. You get used to comfort, fatherhood. You know, you're not worried for a roof over your head anymore. You're, you're comfortable. You've got other interests. You're coaching people. You're doing this. You're doing that. You're a landlord. Like Not being consistent at this point is going to hurt you. And Fraser showed that. I don't think there's much we can read into it. Like Fraser just needs to fight someone who's hungry like he is. Adelaide, Wardley, TKV, whoever it is. He's got to jump in with these guys. Like Solid Dakers. Put him in there. That we can't have no Marius Vac or no guy that's just been brought in to fall over, Hellenius, whoever. We can't have any of that. Put him in with someone we're interested in seeing. Yeah, stop messing around. I think that's what I put on it. And then last fight I'm gonna talk about before I wrap up is Jack Cullen. Wow. Um, what 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 a knockout. Um was actually really distressing to see Hefron get up and drop back down again. Kinda Zab Judah-ish without being as comical. But that was quite quite bad to see. And so listen, don't get up too soon if you're not ready. But I feel for Mark because you watch the whole of that fight and Mark Herfron generally holds his right glove in a position to protect his chin. The one time he doesn't is when Cullen throws the right hook straight into a left hook and he's pulled his glove back just enough that Cullen can clip the point of the chin, and that's it. That's all she wrote. Um, it's not a punch from the gods, but it's a punch that, when it comes off, looks spectacular. So credit to him for throwing it, and I felt for Heffron at that point. But now Jack Cullen is British super mid-champ. 
I mean, doors open up for him. You know, who's he going to fight? Zach Chelly's like, let's do it again. Why not? Uh, why not the guy that beat um, guy that beats that? Can't remember. Was it Mark Jeffers? So suddenly, British level at 168, it gets quite interesting. I wouldn't be surprised if Denzel just jumped up and said, listen, I'll fight Jack Cullen. Why not? I'm sure him being British champion, that can get him a dispensation. All this stuff's exciting. Um, then they had Dan Aziz and Joshua Boatsy in the ring. But tell you my take on it. Sky wasted their money with Josh. And all they're doing by having to try and get some money out of Josh is devaluing Dan. So we're not talking about how they took a punt on Dan. How Dan had already been on Sky when Josh was on there and it hadn't quite worked out. Eddie didn't believe in him. We're not even talking about that. We're not talking about how Sky took that gamble and every fight Dan has delivered. We're not talking about that. We're not talking about how when Sky needed people to step up and show this new era between Sky and Boxer was a real thing. It was guys like Dan Aziz who held it down. We're not talking about that because they've got to get their money out of Josh. And yes, I speak from a position of bias because of my relationship with Dan, but just from a business perspective, Dan's the guy that made this fight relevant. Not Josh. Josh is meant to be fighting guys like Bivol now. He's meant to be fighting guys like Joe Smith Jr., who I think is moving up to Cruiser now. He's meant to be fighting guys like Marcus Brown. He never thought he'd be fighting Dan Aziz. So why are we not here praising Dan for putting himself in that position? No one gave it to him. And Ben Shalom can talk about, yes, me and Dan are close as much as he wants, and I don't doubt it. But this build-up's not showing that to me. And I need it to. Because I'm not getting excited about the fight. Until they start putting Dan's name in lights, I'm not excited. Because <clears throat> what did Josh do? He just came and sandbagged the whole thing because he's just not an interesting guy. You know, they, they thought, oh, we're getting a super talent at a discount here. <laughs> Eddie wouldn't have let him go if he was that guy. <laughs> Eddie's not stupid. Look, you're not hearing about any litigation, any lawsuits. Eddie's like, whew, don't have to pay them anymore. And so, yeah, that, that whole build-up <clears throat> from the start, from when it was announced, it's hurt me. It's hurt me greatly just because I feel they missed an opportunity to put a lot of brand equity into Dan Aziz. And I don't know who's advising Dan sometimes because Dan should be standing up for himself saying, no, 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 no. He's come on here. He's come looking for me. You know, I, I need some, some leverage here. Someone's got to put me on a pedestal. Let me jump on some of these shows you guys have on Sky. Let me jump on there and do some talking. Why not? But we'll see. Um, at this point, in terms of like South London stepping up, I'm more excited by the Sally Scottney fight at Wembley, September 30th. If anyone's going, let me know because I'm tempted. I haven't done a matchroom show in a while. and You know I need protection around me because I can't just be moving around enemy territory naked like that. Um, and on that note, I'll say, listen, have a great day. You guys enjoy this fantastic weather. Absolutely sweltering. Um, came a bit late for most of us. But listen, we'll take the good weather when and where we can. Um, as always, if you enjoy this pod, share it. Convert the masses. You know, let's, let's, let's get our numbers up without having to buy the views or you know, pretend otherwise. Let's, you know, let's do this the right way, guys. It's always appreciated. 
and I hope you feel that too. But yeah, it is. I can't believe you know. But we we might hit two hundred episodes of this incarnation by year end. It's absolutely crazy. But that's down to you guys staying locked in, um, sharing the word, and being brave enough to say, "Hey, we support the thing that calls out the BS in boxing." And on that note, I'll sign off and say, "Take care."、Mm-hmm.